Hello and welcome to the Desperate and Appalling podcast series. My name is Paul Sloan and together with my co-author Des McHale we've written a number of books ranging from uh, lateral thinking puzzles, mathematical lateral thinking puzzles, world's best word puzzles, one, two, three, four, wacky, witty and wonderful words are some of the books we've written. And in this series of podcasts, we chat about puzzles, situations, words, anything that takes our fancy. So please sit back, enjoy the podcast. And if you like it, come back and listen to some more. Well, I'm here today with my co-author, Des McHale. How are you today, Des? Very well. Really looking forward to this. Good. And we're going to chat about one of our greatest creations, one of the creations I'm proudest of, which is Mathematical Lateral Thinking Puzzles, published by Sterling Publishing, written by Paul Sloan and Des McHale. And I think it's a super little book. It is. It's unique. I mean, there is no other book of that title, and there is no other book that I know of that uh, treats of this topic. So it is unique. And what is a lateral mathematical puzzle? Why is it, how is it different from a normal mathematical puzzle? Well, it's really not the puzzles, I think, that are lateral. It's the solutions. And it's a way of approaching a solution which is totally different from just slog, slog, slog. And some people, I think, like to sit back and put their feet up and say, I'm not going to cover three uh, books of um, paper with writing before I get this puzzle out. I'm going to wonder uh, how I get it out in the shortest possible, most elegant way with the least machinery. And there's something very, very economical and very, very uh, attractive about that. Uh, that's true. And we'll come to some great examples of that. Before we do that, can you just reprise the puzzle that you set last week at the end of last week's show? It's been driving quite a lot of people crazy, I think. And the question was, quite simply, can you find a connection between uh, tennis tournaments, chocolate bars and jigsaw puzzles? Uh, but we'll come to that at the end of the show, because it does slot into this particular discussion rather neatly. You're a, a mathematics professional, a professor of mathematics, and you're into pure and, and uh, applied mathematics too, but mainly pure mathematics. I, as an engineer, love mathematics as a tool, as a way of solving problems in the, in the real world. And it's, there's a paper written in 1960 by a physicist called Eugene Wigner uh, with the marvelous title, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences, in which he says, that it's quite outrageous that mathematics should be so effective in explaining the natural world. Yes, but I suppose a lot of mathematics is based on the natural world to start with. If you take the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, etc., they're based on observing objects and trying to put some meaning and reasonableness on the actual objects. So you're building mathematics into reality and you're building reality into mathematics. So it's not surprising that the two of us, it's still a great mystery. The fact that even advanced mathematics, such as things like quaternions, do have applications in reality and always come out right. They always seem to give it the correct answer. It's consistent. One of my earliest lateral thinking puzzles that I liked was the game of bridge or whist. And you know what the setup, whereas you have two uh, pairs of people playing against each other, the cards are dealt out into four hands of 13. If hearts are trumps, then it, a fantastic thing that can happen is that one pair gets all the hearts. A very bad thing that can happen is if one pair gets none of the hearts. The question is, which is the greater chances that you get all of the hearts or none of the hearts? It's and, got to be the same, because if one pair gets all of the hearts, the other pair must have none of the hearts. Well, that's the lateral solution. But you see, <laughs> if, you, if you ask a different question, which, uh, what are the probabilities? That's an extremely difficult question, very hard question to work out. I wouldn't even attempt it here. 
But as you say, the two have to be equal because if one pair gets all of them, the other pair get none of them. Now that is a beautiful lateral solution. And not everybody gets it out as quickly as you are. You're too good, you see, for this thing. So why do engineers like mathematics apart from applications? Well, it's an amazing tool. And, and I remember at school when I did uh, maths and uh, the teacher introduced the concept of imaginary numbers. An imaginary number is a number which involves the square root of minus one. And there is no square root of minus one because no number multiplied by itself produces a negative number. So it, it, it's a concept which is uh, irrational in some ways. It's, it, it just doesn't make sense in the real world. You can't imagine any instrument giving a reading of the square root of minus one. And yet, uh, complex numbers, as they're called, or imaginary numbers, are used in all sorts of fields in electronics and physics and fluid dynamics and other areas to solve complex problems. Yes, well, an imaginary number or a, or a complex number has an interpretation as a rotation through 90 degrees. If you rotate the plane through 90 degrees, you go from a real number to a complex number, an imaginary number. And an Irish mathematician called Hamilton, Sir William Rowan Hamilton, actually gave a complete uh, algebraic foundation for complex numbers, which is just the same as for real numbers or for integers. So there's no mystery. It's just a mathematical set that obeys certain laws. And of course, you now have the question, do any of these things exist? Do numbers exist? Are they a figment of our imagination or are they something that are there that we use? Do we discover them or do we invent them? All sorts of lovely questions that aren't really discussed in school. You just hand the stuff and say, this is it, do it. Discussions about mathematics, I think, would be very, very enlivening as far as mathematics lessons are concerned. When we send a spaceship out into outer space with a message to a, a remote alien civilization, which may find it in a, a million years, one of the symbols we put in there is the theorem of Pythagoras with the right angle triangle, because we figured that wherever they are in the universe, whatever their physical condition, they will have figured that out too, and they will immediately recognize this property that the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the square on the other two sides, some of yes. the squares on the other two sides. Well, you've picked a very good example there, because I think that's the single most important theorem in mathematics. If you had to pick just one theorem that we couldn't do without, it would be the theorem of Pythagoras. It's the basis of trigonometry. It's the basis of advanced algebra. It's the basis of surveying, certainly. And it's also saying something very profound about space. It's saying that we know that going around a corner is longer than going in a straight line. Theorem of Pythagoras tells us just how much it is longer. So why do we need mathematics uh, in everyday life? It's because I think you can't trust your brain uh, to make judgments accurately. So if yeah. I said to you, um, I drove from Cork to Dublin at 60 miles per hour, an average speed of 60 miles, and I drove back at an average speed of 40 miles per hour, what would have been my average speed for the whole uh, return journey? And most people would say 50 miles per hour as the average between 40 yeah. and 60, yeah. but it's not. And when you do the actual maths, you find that it's 48 miles per hour. Um, and it's only when you do these things. Another puzzle which I like to quote is the rope around the earth. And I think this is a, an amazing puzzle uh, because it shows how uh, our brain can deceive us. Our intuitions are wrong. Imagine a rope around the earth. The diameter of the earth at the equator is about 8,000 miles. And I imagine a rope running around the earth exactly at the equator. Now imagine a second rope that is exactly one meter higher than the first rope all the way around. You can think of it as being one meter off the ground or off the sea. How much longer do you think the second rope is than the first rope? Just take a guess. Most people would think the second rope would be much longer than the first, possibly many miles. Yeah. But if we apply a simple formula we learned at school, 
then we can find the answer. The circumference of a circle is pi times the diameter. So the first rope has a length of 8,000 pi miles. The second rope has a diameter exactly two meters longer than the first. So its length is exactly two pi meters longer, about 6.3 meters longer than the first, which isn't very much. So the second rope is only 6.3 meters longer than the first. And yet the amazing thing about this is if you put a rope around the solar system and then another rope, which was uh, one meter further out around the solar system, that would still be only 6.3 meters longer than the first. If you put a rope around the entire observable universe and all its millions of light years across, and then you put a second rope, which was one meter further out, <laughs> it would only be 6.3 meters long. Incredible. I mean, that's so counterintuitive. Count counterintuitive, yes. Actually, you just reminded me of a good joke there when you talked about driving a quarter. How do you go, how do you walk from Cork to Dublin without passing a single pub? There are millions of, how can you possibly go from Cork to Dublin without passing a single pub? I don't know. You, you go into all of them. <laughs> yeah, into everyone. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so... Uh, Des, do you want to give us a, one of your favorite? Yeah, I'm just thinking of the things you do in school that you never think about. And I mean, everybody knows that A squared minus B squared is equal to A plus B, A minus B. And you get endless examples on that and you don't think very much about it. But it can be used in very nice ways. For, suppose, for example, you don't have a calculator handy and you want to get the square of 999. So 90, 999 multiplied by 999. Well, 999 squared minus one squared is 999 plus one by 999 minus one. And that's a thousand times 998. And that's 998000. And then you add one. So it's 998001. So in your head, you can do lots of calculations. And you might say, well, it's easy to do that in the calculator. But if you had 99999, a hundred digits long, the same principle still applies. And you can write it down immediately. And that's what I think is nice about certain bits of mathematics. If you look at them from a lateral point of view, look at them from a different point of view, not just what you learn in the classroom, you can do all sorts of nice things with them. And it's, yes, it's an example of lateral thinking in mathematics because there's a routine, a sluggish way to do it, which is to multiply out the numbers. And there's an elegant lateral way to do it, which is to use the A minus B times A plus B formula. Yeah. And one of my, my favorite example of that is the story that's told of the German mathematician, Carl Friedrich Gauss. And when he was a young schoolboy, his teacher wanted to keep the class quiet. So he assigned them this problem. He said, add up all the numbers from one to 100. And the teacher thought that'll keep them quiet for a while. But the young Gauss raised his hand very quickly with the correct answer. He'd found a quick and elegant way to solve the problem. And it's an example of lateral thinking in mathematics. You see, you could just add one to two to three to four all the way up to 100. But what he saw was that if you add one to 99, you get 100. If you add two to 98, you get 100. If you add three to 97, you get 100. If you add naught to 100, you get 100. And it goes all the way up to 49 plus 51. The only one that doesn't have a pair is 50. And that gives you the answer of there's 50 pairs of 100 and there's 50 left over, so it's 5,050. And he That's found right. an elegant way to solve that problem. Yeah. I think it's said that when he was only four and a half, he used to do his father's accounts for him. His father was a businessman and he used to actually tot up the books for him. <laughs> I don't know whether that's true or not, but I'd believe it. One of my favorite puzzles is if you take an eight by eight board that's made up into 64 squares, you cut off two opposite squares from two opposite corners. So now you have 64 squares minus two. And the question is, can you tile that with a two by one tile? It's a tiling problem. 
and you could spend a lot of time actually doing it or not doing it. And you wouldn't, if you don't get it out, then you know, you don't know if it's possible or not. You might not be just hitting on the right method, but there's a very elegant way of thinking about it. Imagine that your eight by eight board is actually a chess board with alternate black and white squares. And when you take off two opposite corners, you remove two of the same color. You remove either two whites or two blacks. Now imagine your tile, a two by one tile as being half black and half white. And now you've got too many of one color and not enough of the other color. So the problem can't be done. Oh, it's, it's, right. it's absolutely beautifully elegant. Some people actually give it as a chessboard problem. I like to give it just as a, a, an eight by eight board. And then the lateral bit is thinking of it as a chessboard where you actually have alternate black and white squares. But it's a very, very beautiful puzzle indeed. Very good. So the, the book, Mathematical Lateral Thinking Puzzles, is divided into sections. There are easy puzzles moderate puzzles and quite difficult puzzles and it would appeal to anyone studying mathematics at secondary school level up to university level I would say. Um, so I'll give one of the easy ones which is very familiar, uh, very well known but sometimes catches people out. A lily in a pond doubles in size every day. It covers the pond completely in 30 days. How many days does it take to cover exactly half of the pond? So it covers the entire pond in 30 days. It doubles in size every day and it gets to after 30 days, it covers the entire pond. How long does it take to cover exactly half the pond? And of course, the answer is not 15 days. It's 29 days because it doubles in size every day. Um, and that's one of the easy ones to lead you in gently into the book. Well, it may look easy, but remember, it, it's, I think it's a very good puzzle indeed, because it shows you the difference between exponential growth, which is going up by powers, and linear growth, which is going up in straight lines. And most people think in terms of linear growth, they're not capable of thinking in terms of exponential growth. And this was very true during the COVID outbreak. They talked about exponential growth. I don't think they got it correctly in most places, but the rate of growth is a very important phenomenon in real life, and we should pay a lot more attention to it. Can we lighten the discussion with uh, a joke, please? I know you, you're uh, famous for your jokes and collections of jokes. Do you have a, a joke with a mathematical bent in it for us today, Des? Well, even at very elementary level, you get very good jokes. And one of my favourite jokes is the teacher saying to a little boy, um, if Mary gave you uh, three apples and Tom gave you two apples, how many apples would you have? And he said, six apples. No, no. If Mary gave you three apples and Tom gave you two apples, how many apples would you have? Six apples. No, no, no. It says three plus two is equal to five. And the boy says, I know that teacher, but I have an apple already. <laughs> now, that's a joke about boundary conditions. And that's very subtle. And that just shows you when you talk about these problems and puzzles where you translate real life into mathematics, you've got to be extremely careful. And another problem that involves boundary conditions is the snail call, crawling up the, the wall. And it starts on the first day and every day it uh, crawls up three feet and then it slips back at night two feet and the wall is 12 feet high how long does it take to get to the top of the wall is the question so it climbs up three and then it slips back two so it only goes effectively one foot every day so uh, how many days does it take to climb a 12 foot wall not 12 not 12 <laughs> because after uh nine days it's reached nine feet and then on the 10th day, it climbs three feet and it reaches the top. And it doesn't slip back then because it's reached the top. That's actually a wonderful puzzle and it catches most people out. Another puzzle I like is a sort of thing that you would get in a magazine or a newspaper. Can you use eight eights to make a thousand? And here are two solutions. 
8 plus 8 plus 8 plus 88 plus 888 equals 1,000. Or my favorite one probably, 8,888 minus 888 divided by 8 is equal to 1,000. Now there are two solutions, but in our book, I think we've got a dozen different solutions. So it shows you that the solution to a mathematical problem is not always unique. And the, the more you dig, the more solutions you're actually going to find. And I had a teacher who, who really introduced me to mathematics and I owe my whole career to him. And if ever you got a problem out, he'd say, okay, now do it again another way. And sometimes he would ask me a dozen times to get a different solution from what I've got. That's a bit annoying, but it's a wonderful, wonderful training because the more ways that you can solve a problem, the more you understand about the problem. And then at the end of the day, you've got the question, which is the best solution? Which is the most lateral solution? I think that lesson extends to all sorts of other walks in life. There's a, I read a story about CEOs who fail. And uh, it's not that they don't learn, it's that they learn one lesson early in their career and then they apply it over and over again. They get one solution to a problem and they think that's the solution. And very often at school, I think the, the current systems of uh, multiple choice answers encourage people to think there's one correct answer, one correct way of solving a problem. And the teacher who taught you that there are many different ways and the example with the eight eights adding up to a thousand, there are many, many different ways to solve a problem. And very often, if you keep looking, you'll find a better way. It also turns out that if you find another way of solving a given problem, that other way may actually solve another type of problem that the original method won't solve. So you've actually increased the range of problems you can solve by having a uh, different number of methods. And one question I used to set, I set an examination once and it caused absolute chaos. And it was, you're given three points in the plane and you're given their coordinates and you're asked to show that they lie in the same straight line. Now that's a very easy, very trivial problem. But the catch was show in 10 different ways that they lie in the, in the same straight line. And no student got, I think, more than seven of them. But it's a really interesting exercise. If you can do it, can you do it again? Can you do it another way? And what's the best way? That's always the question at the end of the day, which I like to ask. Now, opinions may vary, but you should be able to give a good reason why something is the best solution. And when we look at our lateral thinking puzzles in general, we feel that the solution we give is the best solution in some sense. There are inverted commas around the best, but it's still we still believe that we have found the perfect solution. And the challenge is, could you find a better solution than that? Most people can't. Yes, and, and a very good example is the tennis tournament um, question. So there are 123 players in a knockout tennis tournament. How many games will have to be played to complete the tournament and have one overall winner? Now, there's a number of ways of solving this. And one way is to say, uh, well, if there were 128 players, then we'd play 64 games and down to 32 and so on. Um, but there are 123. So we have to give five players a bye in the first round. And then you calculate it and, and you figure out how many that rounds there are. And then you add up for each round, uh, how many matches and all the way to the final and you get the answer. But there is a much more elegant way to do it, which is to say each match has the purpose of eliminating one player. That's the purpose of a, a match in a tennis tournament. Now, 123 players, then 122 of them get eliminated. The winner wins every match and is not eliminated. Everyone else loses one match and goes out. So therefore there must be 122 games in the uh, tennis tournament to eliminate 122 and leave one winner. That's absolutely beautiful. I, I think that is probably one of the best of all mathematical lateral thinking puzzles. It is clear, it is streamlined, it involves no calculation and anybody can understand it and appreciate it immediately. And that's just wonderful. 
And that was what gave me the inkling when you asked what was the connection between tennis tournaments, chocolate bars and jigsaw puzzles. And I did figure it out. Do you want to share the solution with our listeners? Well, you 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 tell them because you got it out. And I was very, very impressed that you got it out. Because well, I, thought I, it was... I, I knew the tennis tournament puzzle was N minus yeah, one. If there yeah. are N players, then N minus the... one is the number of matches. And I thought a jigsaw puzzle, you put the first two pieces together, that's one join. And then after that, you join one piece at a time. So if there are N pieces, if there's a thousand pieces in a jigsaw puzzle, you make 999 connections or joins. And then I thought about the chocolate bar. And similarly, if you break a chocolate bar in two and then in two and so on, um, provided you don't put the pieces together and break That's right, no stacking. Which you don't do. Every time you break a piece in two, um, you, you increase the number of pieces. And the number of breaks, uh, the number of pieces is one more than the number of breaks. So if you have N pieces in the broken up chocolate bar, you have made N minus one breaks. So N minus one, is the answer yeah and the beautiful thing about that puzzle in all three cases is, is that it's independent of the number of people in the tournament the size of the chocolate bar or the size of the jigsaw puzzle when you put the first piece of the jigsaw puzzle down that's not a join but then everything you do after that is a join and you could join three pieces joined together to that piece and that's still just one join yeah it's absolutely beautiful good 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 so do you want to make any final comments on the book um I was very pleased with the book. It's the only book of its kind. I know from the reactions of people that read it that they really enjoy it and that people, the nicest comment I got from lots of people was, why was mathematics in school not like this? And you must remember mathematics, I'm afraid, is the most hated subject in school. It really is. And I've spent all my life trying to counteract this. Now, algebra, which I'm an algebraist, algebra is hated more than geometry because at least with geometry, you can draw pictures and you can see what's going on. But the manipulation of algebraic symbols, which is one of the most powerful tools known to humanity and which has led to computer science, is really hated by so many young people. And that's a pity. And it can only be because mathematics or some mathematics teachers are dull and they teach it in a dull way. They perhaps dislike the subject themselves or they're afraid of it and they transmit this to their pupils and to subsequent generations. And that's a pity. To me, mathematics is one of the most beautiful things in the world. And, you know, it's something that I enjoy so much and so many people don't enjoy it. Let's finish this podcast with a short puzzle from the book, which uh, we'll give the solution to in the next podcast. You are shown into a darkened room and seated in front of a table that you are told has 32 coins on it. Of the coins, you know that 12 show heads and 20 show tails, but you cannot see anything in the dark. You could touch the coins, but you cannot tell by feeling which show heads and which show tails. How can you divide the coins into two piles, each showing an equal number of heads? Solution in the next episode.